I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This episode of Spaces Podcast is supported by BQE, the makers of BQE Core. BQE Core is the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Learn more at bqe.com. Impressive strength is just one measure of what concrete can do. It's the most common measure. It's what everybody specifies. And honestly, in engineering school, a lot of times they don't teach you much more than that, unfortunately. And I mentioned this earlier. Engineers actually completely neglect the contribution of the concrete for tension. What I think the industry needs is a focus from the manufacturer side, whether that be the cement manufacturers or companies like ours, to provide materials that are strong enough to speak for themselves. We're not just going to neglect that contribution. Hello, my name is Demetrius. And you're listening to Spaces Podcasts Express. Thank you for coming back, everybody. All right, have a treat for you today. Had a great conversation with Luke Pinkerton, the president, CEO, and founder of Helix Steel. And in this conversation, we dig into a lot about structural engineering, kind of the profession, and then talk specifically about the Helix Steel product, specifically their flagship product, which is the Helix Micro Rebar. It's an alternative to traditional rebar. 
So in this conversation, we talk about limitations on the industry due to the prescriptive nature of structural engineering, talk a little bit about how the profession tends to neglect the tensile strength of concrete. Then we get into some of the specifics on the Helix micro rebar product, talking about use cases, benefits, performance comparisons, and both with Helix and other products, how you can innovate within the framework of the existing code. So hope you stick around for this entire conversation. It's a really good one. Ended up running a little long, uh, but I hope you enjoy this conversation with Luke Pinkerton. Luke, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, looking forward to this. So we connected through another one of the Gable Media podcasts to contribute to an episode, I believe, the Mars Canopy or Pavilion. And you contributed to that project in a very unique way that I'm not sure a whole lot of people know about, but I imagine it's getting bigger and bigger as the days go by. And that's the Helix product. But before we jump into the Helix product specifically, I wanted to take a step back and, and have you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, not a problem, Demetrius. Uh, my name's, uh, as I said, it's Luke Pinkerton. I am the founder and chief technology officer and actually CEO of Helix Steel. My background is actually structural engineering. I have a degree in structural engineering from the University of Michigan. And I've been really at this since, oh boy, it's been almost 20 years since I founded my business here. So we're based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The product that we sell is called Helix Micro Rebar. It was originally developed at the University of Michigan. Primarily at the time, they were looking at, you know, how can we make concrete essentially blast resistant, you know, almost super concrete. So take any budget considerations away and kind of figure out, you know, can you make steel, you know, concrete behave more like steel or even better. I got involved with the company and the product when I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan. And then I worked for a few years in the structural engineering field and then came back to it and founded the business in, in 2002. And my role at this point is really supporting sales globally from a technical perspective, as well as doing a lot of work advocating for sort of advanced technology and concrete. So I helped found a committee at the American Concrete Institute that's looking at advanced materials and you know how we can leverage those going forward to create better, more sustainable concrete. I am involved with the residential concrete committees at ASTM or ACI, and then I'm also chairing a committee on material testing at ASTM. Yeah. So when you were at Michigan, were you involved in the product development or had they already started to get the product going? They were already starting to study it. And it's it's kind of an interesting story. Uh, the Helix product is it, it resembles little screws. So what it is, is about toothpick size pieces of reinforcement that you mix into the concrete. You mix millions of these into a typical concrete truck and they resemble little screws. I was hired basically to help some of the graduate students make these and test these. And we literally had to make them with, we took the little pieces of wire and we 
took a, a drill and a pair of pliers and <laughs> made these pieces one by one. So I helped with the research to develop it, but then I also developed the first machine that was used to make the product in a quantity that could actually be used. You can't, I mean, there are millions, every box that we sell has like a half a million pieces in it. So you can imagine, I don't care how many graduate students or work study students you've got, um, you're you're just not going to get anywhere. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's funny. So you were there when the pro- early on in the product development, and then you said you split off to go sort of the traditional route for a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about what you experienced in the traditional form of structural engineering and, and specifically with concrete, and maybe if that led you back by experiencing that, or, or how did that transition work? Well, this is a little bit of a twist, though. Um, I wouldn't call what I did exactly traditional. I would say that I got a little frustrated, even in graduate school, at the prescriptive nature of structural Mm. engineering. So, you know, I I would imagine as an architect, one of the reasons you go into architecture is you want you want to, like, create things from the ground up. You don't want to just figure out how to do something from a formula in a book or a table in a book. Yeah. So I kind of realized this early on. I, it was kind of like past the point that I was going to change majors into something else. So I picked my first job. I actually worked for a shipbuilder uh, on the East Coast. It's called Bath Iron Works. They're a division of General Dynamics. And if you think about it, a ship is like a giant floating building. Well, it's a, it's a giant floating factory with a power plant in it, basically. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what I liked about that, I wasn't particularly interested in shipbuilding or anything like that. But what I liked about it is it presented unique challenges that are not necessarily things that can be prescribed. So mm. you can imagine the, the, the ship can be at any angle. It can be subjected to different wind forces from all different areas other forces that might come from like an enemy ship, for example, you know, what I liked about it is it was, it was basically engineering from first principles on day one. And that's really what I wanted to do. I didn't want to just kind of get into, you know, reading designs out of steel tables or concrete formulas, et cetera, et cetera. So I did that for about three years, but then quickly realized that working, you know, essentially for a government contractor just wasn't really what really for me. I mean, yeah, there are pros and cons to everything. Right. But, you know, just working in a shipyard was a interesting experience. Very cool. I got to go up into like the North Atlantic on sea trials. I got to go see, you know, submarines being built and all kinds of stuff. Did some really interesting testing. Um, stru- all structural engineering, you know, so my job was really to make sure the ship wouldn't fall apart, you yeah. know, when it's out there in the North Atlantic. Really cool from a structural engineering perspective, but not, you know, something I wanted to spend my entire career on. Yeah. So in that experience, you talked about the frustration of the prescriptive nature of structural engineering. Did that highlight for you a connection or uh, make a connection back to Helix and and the ability to step outside of the prescriptive nature? Well, yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of a natural transition for me to kind of go back into Helix because Helix is something 
Certainly there are products that are kind of, I guess, similar. Um, we call Helix Twisted Steel Micro Reinforcement and, and define it as something different from, for example, fiber reinforced concrete because it has some different behavioral characteristics. But when I started the business, I had nothing more than a PhD thesis that had been done on the product and pretty much a blank slate to kind of figure out, okay, you know, how should this product be tested? How should it be designed? You know, what are the, the rules that should be applied? Where can it be used? Where shouldn't it be used? And, you know, very much so was a challenge to kind of develop all that from the ground yeah. up. To, just to give our listeners a little bit of a frame of reference, let's go through the at least three different types of concrete. Um, traditional, and you mentioned fiber, and then uh, helix. Can you kind of explain the difference between the three? Yeah, so the, you know, the most simplest concrete is just plain concrete. You have like just like a slab on grade or something like that. Sometimes they don't put any reinforcement in it at all. Yeah, just like a sidewalk or something. Right. When you get to the point where there's loads on that concrete, you typically will put rebar in the concrete. And the rebar, basically the structural engineer's job is to figure out in that, in that concrete where there's tension where it, it, it goes into kind of a pulling, you know, there's compression when you're squishing things together and there's tension when you're pulling it apart. And anywhere where there's tension, the engineer will put rebar. They'll assume the concrete doesn't have any tensile strength at all, when in fact it does. It's, it's not as much as the compressive strength and they'll put rebar there. That's kind of tried and true. It's around, it's been around, but it's, it's, it's expensive. It's time consuming to put that rebar in because it, it has to be manually placed there. There's also fiber reinforced concrete that's, again, been out there for at least half a century. I mean, arguably, you go even back to like the Roman times, they would use horsehair and, and straw and things like that to reinforce their concrete. Those products uh, generally are used to reinforce the concrete after it cracks. So say you've got a piece of plastic fiber. The plastic is actually 10 times softer than the concrete. So what it does is it binds to the concrete pretty well. And if a crack forms, it'll stretch like a rubber band and it eventually start to restrain that crack. But the crack has to form first. The step with micro rebar or helix is we have a twisted shape to it. Um, it's about an inch long, about a half a millimeter in diameter and it's a twisted shape, and it's made of steel, high tensile steel, that's 10 times stiffer than the concrete. So what it does is it engages the concrete, it grabs the concrete, so it actually can start to pick up load before you get that visible cracking, like you do with the fiber reinforced concrete. Uh, so it increases the amount of force it takes to crack the concrete. And then after the concrete eventually does crack, which, you know, nobody, if anybody ever tells you that they're going to give you concrete that they guarantee won't crack, you should really question their sanity. <laughs> if it does crack, it, it, it holds the concrete together and it actually, that, that threaded shape actually has some benefit in that regard as well. So unlike rebar, unlike fiber, Helix is more proactive in that it helps to prevent the initial crack from forming, but then it also holds the concrete together after it cracks. So it's like the next step in reinforcement. It does both, not just the latter. So use case wise, what are you seeing 
how are you seeing this rolled out and sort of advancements beyond traditional concrete with the Helix product? Yeah. So, I mean, so the traditional concrete is like slabs and like the city of Los Angeles, for example, uses it in sidewalks. Uh, we have customers, uh, very large automotive companies now that are putting this in the, the slabs in their battery factories, uh, which is kind of cool to see. But then you go into kind of the applications that go beyond that slab on grade. And in the world of structural engineering, there's a big difference between a pavement or a slab on grade and what we call structural concrete. So technically anything that supports a building or a structure of some sort, it's governed by the International Building Code or ACI 318, the structural code. And that's where we've really pioneered things. We have applications like, for example, in insulated concrete form construction, which is a form of stay-in-place foam walls that's really energy efficient. We have installations where we've reduced the amount of rebar in these walls going back almost 16 years, 17 years. We do a lot of work also in foundations. We have thousands and thousands, probably over close to 20,000 structures that have been poured with uh, formed concrete walls or foundations. So in the Midwest, uh, everybody has a basement and they dig a hole and they, they put these aluminum forms up and normally they put rebar between these forms and they pour the, the basement wall, they use helix instead. But then we've done some stuff that's a lot cooler too. You know, we just finished a massive solar project where the, every single foundation on a, a solar project in Nevada used helix instead of rebar. And there's tremendous savings in that trying to get all this rebar that's bent to a particular size and shape out into the desert in Nevada yeah. is challenging. The manual labor of someone going and laying all of those rebar, you basically cut all of that out, right? Because the helix is just mixed into the concrete. Yeah. And then, you know, you also don't have to have all these trucks going out to who knows where in the desert to, to get that bar out there. So there's there's a lot of savings there. And then, you know, even like the Seattle Ferris wheel, the foundations under that are helix reinforced. So we've done some really cool things like that. We've also done some things that kind of demonstrate the next frontier, like the Mars Canopy Project or the Mars Pavilion Project, where we designed a completely no rebar structure that had really, really irregular forms. And I think one of the challenges of the future is, you know, these, these old ways of reinforcing things like rebar become really a hindrance to automated construction methods like additive manufacturing or 3d printing you have to stop and put rebar in you know also from an architectural perspective one of the things i think that was cool about the mars canopy is it showed that with a technology like this you can really do any shape or form that you're looking for because the reinforcement's integral with the material yeah you know and we're so used to all these big boxes out there yeah. And that's more out of necessity than I'm sure the architecture community would, you know, if there were more opportunities to do things that aren't just boxes. The problem has been you just can't do something other, you know, it's it's cost, it's efficiency, and it's been reinforcement too. Yeah. Because Helix is also saving or um, resolving an issue of shortage, right? Or cost of rebar or something like that? Well, yeah, that's another good point. Um I mean, I, this may be kind of a short-term thing, but 
you know, with COVID came a lot of supply chain jam ups as, as well as increase in commodity prices. So steel prices went up considerably, but uh, transportation costs went through the roof. Um, mm-hmm. And we make the product in in uh, near Chicago and you know just north of Chicago and in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So centrally located in the United States, you know. So we're still here, you know, in the United States. Uh, we've got a great staff. We're ISO certified. We were audited by the various code agencies, and being here means we can ship anywhere in the United States in about three days. You know, you're not trying to import from some some place, you know, that you can't get the material or, you know, a lot of places couldn't even get there's certain size rebar this summer you couldn't even get. So you had yeah. engineers trying to substitute other sizes of rebar or using rebar that was bigger than necessary, for example, because they yeah. couldn't get certain sizes. Let's take a break to share a little bit more about our sponsors. Systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom you want, but you struggle with choosing which systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so that you can get back to doing what you love most. This series will help. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series created by acclaimed architect and business consultant Douglas Teeger, FAIA, aims to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew his practice from a solo practitioner to a 30-plus person firm, then later sold his firm to do what he does today, help architects be more successful through Tiger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth for years to come. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit and when you visit bqe.com masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free, and it's brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com masterclass. That's bqe.com masterclass. Hey, Demetrius here. As you may know, Spaces is part of Gable Media, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. Gable empowers AE professionals just like you to better serve the world. Now, through the strategic development of a brand new membership platform, we are eliminating the traditional industry boundaries and information bottlenecks that we all experience. But we need your help. Please go to gablemedia.com/members and pick your top three initiatives that you believe will have the greatest impact on your growth, including a continuing education program, VIP access to expert forums and private Q&As, community boards, special freebies, and more. Go to gablemedia.com members and let us know what you'd like to see. Small Firm Entrepreneur Architects Get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast, where business meets architecture. 
Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect Podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. (laughs) So for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today, is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. And now let's get back to the conversation. To your point about um, the ability to, to sort of free you up design wise, uh, you mentioned the Mars Pavilion um, and we'll I'll add a link to uh, the show notes to that episode of detail to hear more about the, the actual project. But a short explanation, it kind of looks like a, a adult jungle gym <laughs> cage to some extent. And they were actually able to, uh, you talked about the unique form work they did. I think they used stocking to create those forms and then use the Helix product with their concrete. I think they may have added some additional mix. I'm not quite sure, but they were able to get up to a 12,000 PSI compressive strength, I think. Is that common with Helix? Can you talk a little bit about that if it's a, a better compressive strength that you can get with helix compared to traditional structural concrete yeah i mean that's a great question and you know compressive strength is just one measure of what concrete can do it's the most common measure it's what everybody specifies and honestly in engineering school a lot of times they don't teach you much more than that unfortunately (laughs) you know it's a four thousand psi mix it's a three thousand psi mix um and you know that's one number you put into your calculation uh, Helix does have an increase. It does help increase that that number, but what it really does is it increases the flexural or the tensile strength of the concrete. Mm-hmm. So, the concrete is about ten times stronger in compression than tension. And I mentioned this earlier. Engineers actually completely neglect the contribution of the concrete for tension, the tensile mm-hmm. contribution in their designs. So. One of the things with the Mars Pavilion we did is we we threw that assumption kind of to the side and we said, okay, you know, we put Helix in here. It was an off-the-shelf mix that was made by CTS Cement, Cementol, which is a it's a higher strength concrete mix. But we're going to go ahead and we're going to use the tensile capacity of the concrete. We're not just going to neglect it. That was really what enabled us to do what we did there because, you know, we're, we're, we're adding 
tensile strength to the concrete. The compressive strength isn't really what's going to keep that structure together. It's when that thing, say there's an earthquake and that thing starts swaying, each of those members is going to start to bend. Yeah. And if you maybe remember from your basic mechanics class, you know, when something bends, the top, the, the top of the span goes into compression and the bottom goes into, into tension. Yeah. And what we're doing is we're adding tension there. And that's what I think is really cool about that project is it really illustrates what we need. What I think the industry needs is a focus from the manufacturer side, whether that be the cement manufacturers or companies like ours, to provide materials that are strong enough to speak for themselves. We're not just going to neglect that contribution. And there was a kind of a nice partnership that formed with that pavilion project. We got together with CTS Cement, and we found that when we mixed our two products together, we got a much higher compressive strength and we got a, you know, a much higher flexural strength. And the work that I mentioned I'm doing at the American Concrete Institute is really aimed at, okay, trying to provide a code for a framework within the code where somebody can develop an, an advanced material. I don't care what it's made of. You can make it out of frozen jello with, you know, gummy bears in it or something. Uh, if you test it and you get a better flexural strength than a baseline material that you would then be able to use that strength in design and, and not just use, again, we go back to that, pers- my frustration at the beginning of my career that right now the code has a, a very prescriptive, you use a certain number, which is very, very low yeah. for the concrete strength, particularly the flexural strength. If you're using reinforced concrete, you neglect it. If you're using plain concrete, you get to use basically a, a quarter of what the plain concrete capacity actually is. But the whole idea is, is if we can create a code allowance that says, go run this test, this flexural tensile test, ASTM C78, develop a mix like we did for the the Mars canopy. And if it has 10 times the strength, you can use it when you design a building instead of rebar. And, you know, the the provisions are already there in the code. What's missing is the ability to to run that test. And I strongly believe that if that's there, then the industry, you know, we're innovative people here. Um, They're engineers that they're material scientists, they're engineers that are ready to do this, but they won't do it if there's not an incentive hmm. to do it. And if that incentive exists and you can use it, the structural engineers can use it and we can show 10 times the strength in a, a, a of ordinary concrete, for example, maybe it's nanotechnology, maybe it's helix, maybe it's some chemical admixture that makes the concrete bond together better. Yeah. I believe industry would go after that. I believe the architecture community would immediately become supportive, if not interested, especially if it enabled things that weren't possible before when it comes to form, you know, and I think ultimately we would end up with better building materials that lasted longer and were more sustainable. I mean, one of the things that higher flexural strength allows is for thinner sections. And that's one of the big things that people are trying to do right now is reduce the, the carbon footprint. You know, if we can make the walls of our house two inches thick instead of six, which is what they do now with concrete homes, then, you know, that's a huge savings. Yeah. So there's all kinds of benefits. Is that neglect of the tensile strength? Is that just because of that prescriptive nature or uh, education 
standards or why do you think that structural engineers and, and the code sort of sweeps the tensile part under the rug or doesn't pay as much attention? Well, when you're designing, I mean, and I, it gets a little technical here. I don't want to get too deep, but when you're designing with rebar, you completely neglect it. And it's, it's more or less a, a convenience for calculation. Unfortunately, you just assume the concrete's going to crack in tension and then the rebar is going to carry the load. So you just give up on it from day one. The code does allow you to use plain concrete. Um, there's a chapter, it's chapter 14 in the American Concrete Institute code 318. You can use the plain concrete capacity there, but they require a factor of safety of between four and five be applied. So basically, if you were to run this test I'm talking about, you would divide what you got by five, which at that point, you end up with very, very thick sections that don't make sense. The rebar yeah. is always going to make more sense. In fact, it's it's essentially neglecting it. The reason they do that, honestly, is because, well, and this is a little bit of an opinion, but I've researched this. I'm in Michigan. The American Concrete Institute is actually right down the road from me. I've gone there and actually looked through their microfiche, if anybody knows what that still is, that they <laughs> have from their old committee meetings. This hasn't been looked at for 40 years. There was a committee that was looking at it back in the you know, 1960s, 70s, probably it's more like 60 years, in the 1960s, 70s, and they just dropped it at that point. And who knows why? Yeah. Um, but there was actually an engineer that was chairing the committee that I actually reinstated at the American Concrete Institute. It's called Structural Plain Concrete. And I, one of his quotes was that... There are efforts out there to make concrete behave better that ought to be given credit for. And the code didn't really recognize it. So they made some progress back then in terms of having these performance allowances. But then it, they just gave up on that and went to a very prescriptive, this is the number that you'll use for the strength of the concrete when you design with plain concrete. And it was based on the compressive strength of the concrete which really isn't related. And what's happened is nobody's really looked at that factor of safety or those equations for half a century. And that was one of the reasons, um, and the American Concrete Institute is uh, known for their, what, what, what's been called a glacial approval process for everything. I managed to convince them over the course of several years to reopen this committee, to reinstate it. For that very reason, nobody's looked at this for a half a century. All kinds of things have happened since then. We have better mixing equipment, better aggregates. We have better admixtures. The quality control cement production is better. Just the ability to more precisely meter allows us to really dial in the strength a little bit. And I think one of the reasons the factor of safety was so high was that there was just a lot of variability in the behavior because... Yeah, I mean, we were talking about like the 1950s and 1960s technology that was making concrete. Totally different game now. Forget about the materials. Just think about how the concrete's made. So we're using provisions from the 60s, the 50s and 60s to design concrete with. Do you think the litigious nature of society is preventing them from even considering it as well? Or is it more of a technical laziness well, I think so, but you know, the, there's certainly limits to like, even if you look at chapter 14 of ACI 318, it's not, I mean, it's fairly limiting in what you can do. 
it's not going to allow you to use essentially plain concrete in like a high rise building. But a lot of the stuff that we build, you can use plain concrete, residential footings, residential basement walls, uh, one and two story buildings, you know, a lot of foundations. There's a big push right now in uh, by the American Society of Civil Engineers to make there's a lot of warehousing going in right now. And what they want is for industry to consider these big, tall racks that they put in these buildings as building loads. And in order to do that, you have to treat the slab not just as essentially a pavement, but as a structural member. And, you know, that's an excellent application for structural plain concrete that the way the code's written right now is not feasible because it's too conservative. So what we hope to do is provide the industry with more tools, you know, an allowance to measure that flexural strength and perhaps the ability to use more advanced analysis methods than were available in the 1940s, 50s, 60s to design these things in places where it's appropriate. So yes, there are litigious people out there, but one of the reasons the ACI is so glacial in their process is they require consensus and safety is a really important parameter. But I think yeah, that's one of the cool things about this. If we can get this per, these provisions through, then, you know, there would be a standard, you know, like for Helix, we, we know that it increases that flexural strength. We can fit right into that. We can increase the flexural strength. We get a little bit more capacity. Maybe we can do a six inch wall instead of an eight inch wall in that basement setting. And there's good solid basis to do that. So yes, there's always a big safety focus. And that's one of the reasons structural engineering is so prescriptive, right? Because of the safety. Yeah. So I would be upset with myself if I forgot to ask this question, but so you're saying that it's super prescriptive code right now. Does that mean even though you get all of these benefits and uh, flexibility with Helix, you're still, your hands are still tied to where you still have to provide that eight inch wall instead of going down to the six because of the restrictiveness of the code? That's a great question. Um, no, I mean, there are ways that companies that are innovative, innovative can function in the building code environment. And the way that that's done is through what we call an evaluation report. So we have an evaluation report that's published, for example, by the uh, International Code Council Evaluation Service. The International Code Council is the same group that publishes the IRC and IBC. Mm -hmm. And in the IRC and IBC, there's an alternative materials and methods allowance. And what it says is that if you have engineering testing or data that shows an alternative method or material can provide equal performance to what the code requires, you can use it. And then the third-party publisher requires us to do a bunch of testing. I mentioned that we had factory audits. Our factory has to be audited. We have to run a bunch of these flexural tests. So we've actually been doing what I was just describing with this flexural strength-based performance design for the better part of a decade using these evaluation reports. And the nice thing about the report is it's a short report. It gives the engineer full assurance that we're meeting the performance requirement that's in the building code, which is we're providing the, the flexural strength at the level of safety the code's asking for, but we're doing it with Helix. The advantage of getting this through like the American Concrete Institute, it makes it more available. There are certain 
engineers that are happy to use an evaluation report. There are other engineers that just want to do what's in the book because honestly, they sleep best at night at that <laughs> yeah. point. Yeah. And the other thing, I guess, maybe not so selfishly is uh, if we got it into the ACI 318 or uh, the, the, the code, then it opens up the market to create sort of a competitive environment to try to keep making it better, allowing mm-hmm. our free market to kind of find the best solution over time. That's the last benefit of it. And that's kind of one of the legacies I hope to leave. So when us architects want those low profile floor systems and things, we should push our our structural engineers to to think outside the box and be willing to to go for those evaluations and the alternative um, methods, uh, material methods to try and make it happen. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think it's a really good point. You know, those evaluation reports require a lot of third party scrutiny. The products that are uh, evaluated, they, they go through the same type of consensus process that is required to get things into building code itself. There's a peer review, there's a public review, all the testing has to come from third-party sources. And, and yes, and it, it's a very good way for a structural engineer to feel comfortable that the product is going to perform as indicated because it's not marketing. It all comes from a third-party company. So, you know, I would definitely encourage your listeners to, to just go like go to the ICC Evaluation Service website or, or you know, they have some competitors. Uh, Uniform Evaluation Service is another one. They all follow the same process and you'll see a whole list of innovative products in there that can be employed and, you know, may allow you to do things that you didn't think were possible. Thank you so much, Luke. Uh, really enjoyed this conversation. We went way over time and we probably could talk for another hour, <laughs> but I really appreciate your time. Uh, for those that want to follow along with Helix, what's the best way for them to do so? You could follow us on our socials. Um, it's just at Helix Steel. Or you could uh, check out our website, which is just www.helixsteel.com. Thank you so much again, Luke. And thank you to the listeners for listening. We'll talk again on the next one. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. Thanks again for listening. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon.
Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.